You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On this episode, I speak with Will Seeley, who's co-founder and CEO of Summer, a B Corp that's helping student loan borrowers navigate the repayment process to maximize their savings. Prior to Summer, Will worked at SoFi on business strategy and operations, and prior to that served as one of the first student loan policy experts at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, also known as the CFPB. Will was a special assistant and policy advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren at both the CFPB and the U.S. Department of Treasury. In 2010, Will worked at the White House on a team tasked with implementing the Dodd-Frank Act. Will earned his MBA from the Yale School of Management and his BA from the College of William & Mary. Summer has raised over $12 million and has over 40 employees. On the episode, we discussed his journey through the government to startup founder, how a friend inspired him to start his first organization, which decisions to make quickly and which to take your time on, and managing multiple consumer channels. I think you'll enjoy, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Will. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles. Happy to be here. What do people misunderstand about student loans? I think there's so much talk right now about student loans uh, being a burden for borrowers, um, playing a key role in the economic recovery in the time of, of COVID. Um, I think a lot of a lot of misperception around it is not that student loans are are now, say, bigger than what they were for our parents' generation or the generation before it. I think most people understand tuition has increased at a very steady clip, far faster than inflation and the average costs of goods across the spectrum. But it's not that it's just that it's it's a lot. It's that it, the process of repaying student loans is so difficult and confusing. And breaking that down into in, you know, a level deeper, I'd just say you know, there's, there's federal loans, there are private student loans, many borrowers have a mix. Within the federal student loan domain, there's almost a dozen different types of loans. There are loans for parents, there are loans for students. Uh, you have unsubsidized loans, subsidized loans. Within the private sector, you have fixed interest rates, variable interest rates, and most borrowers have a bundle of all these different types of loans and it is actually quite confusing because there's not a single portal for which you pay back these loans. You're doing it on multiple lender websites. Sometimes the government assigns a servicer that collects payments from you, but those servicers can change year to year. And so where your bills are being sent move, it's very hard to keep track of it all. And I think that's why a lot of borrowers, in addition to just the sheer dollar value, feel completely overwhelmed by the process and that they're not being set up for success. And when they're overwhelmed by that process, what are the potential solutions? I think that the most obvious solution for, you know, when we talk to borrowers and what we're trying to build here at Summer as a consolidated system, a one-stop shop, where all of your loans funnel into a single dashboard where you can facilitate payments in one place, and the guidance is given on a on a case by case basis per loan type as to what you can do to reduce the burden of those loans. 
So every borrower is different and has different considerations, but you can kind of divide the world into two large groups, those who can afford to repay their loans and those who can't. And especially for the latter camp, we found that borrowers who can't afford to pay their loans are often unaware of all of the different loan repayment assistance programs out there that can help them reduce their monthly payments and maybe even have a significant portion of their debt forgiven overall. There are those that know of the programs but never had success enrolling because the application process for these uh, programs is confusing. And it is, again, on a case-by-case basis, one in which borrowers find that some loans qualify, others do not. When you have a dozen loans, that's incredibly difficult to manage. We often hear the processes like filing your taxes without any accounting support, whether that be a program like TurboTax or an actual accountant, borrowers usually feel like they're navigating this on their own. Because there's no real go-to person to ask for the average student loan borrower, people are Googling, they're getting misinformation, uh, they're doing things incorrectly. And what we've seen is an unfortunately incredibly high number of horror stories where people ended up winging it, doing it on their own, not their fault per se, they just didn't have options to turn to, and then converted their loans from government loans into private loans through refinancing, and then were no longer eligible for government loan assistance, or examples where they consolidated several federal loans into one federal loan, but it precluded them from a very advantageous program that could have saved them tens of thousands of dollars. So it's a very dis, dis, you know, broken system. And what we're looking at at summer is in talking to thousands and thousands of borrowers of what could have been done differently, what could be done better, a single, a single point of contact, a consolidated place of, of trusted information and a guide to know what to do when over what is oftentimes a 15 year long repayment timeline. So tools and advice to manage what could be up to a dozen student loans. I thought it was interesting what you said there about the federal loans have various provisions that are borrower friendly to reduce your payments if you get into financial trouble, which may not be available in the private alternatives like the consolidation loans. Is that right? That's right. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, the way we think of this is, again, there's, there's a role lacking in the current system of, of a borrower advocate, but also an advisor counselor. There, that, that role doesn't really exist. And so Summer's trying to, to create that. And we've looked at a lot of different situations in, in similar categories. Again, I mentioned taxes. You know, the, the government is going to collect your taxes. And as an individual, the tax code is impossibly difficult to understand on your own unless you have a CPA and you've devoted your career to this. It's, it's unlikely that you're going to understand all the nuances of such a complex system. And so what you do is you ideally you turn for help. And there are trusted sources of information. If you, if you can afford an accountant, that's great. If, if you need to uh, work with a software uh, that you prefer, it might be lower cost, it might do the job. You just get the confidence that there's intelligence behind the repayment process for your loan, for, for your taxes. 
And then, you know, if you're working in a, in a community where you really can't afford either option, there are community groups that work and help people get the tax guidance they need on a case-by-case basis. That role doesn't, doesn't exist on the student loan side. And so there are all kinds of situations, and you just highlighted one, Miles, where there's an individual who, you know, would lose the ability to get access to government benefits by refinancing a government loan, oftentimes called a federal loan, into a private loan. That could be, you know, any one of these companies out there that are advertising lower your interest rate. That is what refinancing is really centered around. And the challenge for those individuals is understanding the risks. If you are a very fortunate individual where you took on $200,000 of debt, but you're now earning $400,000, $300,000 in an incredibly high paying job, then refinancing might actually be a great option for you because if you feel like you have job stability and you feel that uh, you're not going to risk going for long periods of unemployment where those very high student loan bills could pile up past the point of your ability to repay them. You know, if if you're in a comfortable, high paid situation, even with that incredibly high debt load, refi might be a great option for you. But for a lot of borrowers, maybe who have $60,000 of student debt on, say, a $35,000 or $40,000 income, and a lot of that profile kind of matches a lot of recent college graduates who are, are really just setting out in their career. They don't have a lot of money on hand. They're, they're also usually in their lowest paid point in their career. That's a very precarious time. And a a dangerous time to refinance their student loans, because if they go a year without finding a job, if we see another shift in the job market where it's hard to to work, you know, they could be in a very precarious situation. And we've seen a lot of borrowers that aren't able to make their payments and end up risking default on their loans, which can really harm their credit score and really set them back several rungs on the ladder when, they're, when they should really be just getting set up for success. And aside from losing a job, what are the common reasons people can't pay back? Yeah, I mean, we see all kinds of situations. One of the most common that we found in our research is an unexpected medical bill. I think that's one that almost always catches people off guard, either through an accident or in a very unpredictable situation with someone's health. And, you know, they have a, a, an illness that needs an operation or a surgery. And even if they do have insurance, you know, there's, there's sky high bills and they just haven't planned for it. That can really set them back. A, a lot of folks who are, are in the kind of 70, 60% of borrowers who've told us they're struggling to make payments, we find that oftentimes they have monthly bills of around five to $600. And they just are, you know, that's the about the amount of money they have in their balance in their bank account on any given month. And so they're always cutting it really, really close, just trying to scrounge up those dollars to be able to make that payment. And inevitably, for some, they miss that payment in one month. And then, you know, they're, they're dealing with late fees, they're dealing with interest accruing on top. And, and all of that is just feels like, you know, they're kind of, they're falling down the well and they can't catch, you know, get a grip. And that's a scary place for so many. That's why we see that uh, about one in five student loan borrowers have fully defaulted on their loans. 
It's about 18%. There's a lot of fear that when student loan payments come due again in May, that that number is going to really jump because when they do, there are a lot of folks who've gone almost a year and a half not paying that bill because the government paused payments as part of the pandemic relief. And we're talking over, over 25 million people are going to have their loans start back up again, really all on the same month. And we're going to see some pretty seismic shifts in terms of people's uh, bank accounts. And I know a lot of financial institutions are starting to talk about concerns about people's ability to repay their car loans, their mortgage, their credit card bills when that big student loan payment comes back online. If you had a magic wand, what would you do to make the system work better for borrowers? I think, Miles, the, the, the real answer is that I would, first off, make sure that everyone who's been told that they're eligible for student loan forgiveness and cancellation receives it. I think there are millions of people who are eligible for disability assistance, for public service loan forgiveness, for forgiveness in income-driven uh, repayment programs, and so many other programs that are just waiting around for the government for an answer while they have to keep making payments, um, you know, right now they're paused, but May's coming up. And I think for so many people, they say, what's happening? I just don't get clear information. So that's an obvious one that I think just needs to happen. I think in terms of more creative solutions going forward, we're in a really tough spot as a country. You can understand President Biden has said that he's interested in potentially canceling up to $10,000 of student debt across the board. And I am fully in support of him doing so, but I will say it, it will still leave tens of millions of people in debt. And if you have $100,000 of your student loan balance, dropping to $90,000 I'm sure would be appreciated, but it somewhat feels like a drop in the bucket. And so I think going forward, we need to get really creative. It, it, you know, you look at other countries who are handling this, and America has a debt problem. Not only is our national debt through the roof and now larger than it's ever been in the history of the country, but our own student debt load, which is theoretically owed back to the government by the borrowers who took the money to begin with, there's this weird catch-22 that I'm sure the president's looking at, which is, how much student debt can I relieve to my constituents, people who voted for me and those who didn't, to support an entire generation who's been overloaded with more debt than anyone prior? But I'm also looking as the president, the leader of the United States, at the national debt load. And the country is in a situation. So how do I balance both situations? And I think that's where I would look at other countries Australia is an interesting example where there's actually a 0% interest rate. So I don't think that there's too many advocates in, you know, in the Biden administration who says we're going to make student loans free. They're not going to be loans. They're going to be grants. So if you have to borrow $60,000 going forward, you'd receive it as a $60,000 grant never to be paid back. 
I don't think that anyone in the Biden administration is that far left to say that's that's the direction we'll go. That would be effectively a, a two trillion dollar increase to the national debt load that would be effectively going forward every 10 years that would just keep mounting and it wouldn't provide any guardrails for colleges to keep costs under control if they knew this money was just immediately available. But if you look at Australia, they have a 0% interest loan. So what that's effectively saying is if you need to borrow to cover college costs, you can do so. But this interest isn't going to keep accruing over 10, 20, and, and we've seen borrowers who've been in repayment for 30 or even 40 years where they borrow $20,000 in like 1985 or, or 1990, and, and now they owe $120,000 because the interest rate just keeps adding and adding and they keep struggling to repay. And these are borrowers who are making payments but occasionally will miss monthly payments. And just to ground that, I'd say I spoke to the director of a nonprofit based in New York City who has two kids. And, you know, he's, he's won all of these awards for his program in theater management. He went to a, a college back in the 90s where he borrowed $20,000 for a theater degree and, you know, in the arts. And, and he employs 20 to 30 people but he's struggled to pay back his loans over the years. It's expensive living in New York City. It's not easy having two kids and trying to cover the costs of, you know, they're setting them up. And inevitably, he's really struggled to pay it back. And his, his debt is now, you know, close to $120,000. He luckily is eligible for public service loan forgiveness because he does work for a nonprofit. And I think he's been a incredible value add by providing all of these jobs in society and providing an important form of, of entertainment in, in society. He has an incredibly important role, but he's just struggled with his loans given his, his situation. And so he will have that debt canceled, which is great under the PSLF program. It's taken him a really long time to get everything in his paperwork eligible. And here at Summer, we've helped him do so. And so that's a success story. But but he what about the person like him who's not working for a nonprofit and has one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, you know, and is working maybe as a security guard in a museum, you know, and they've they've gone twenty thousand dollars, you know, from from years ago that is completely racked up. I think in Australia, a person like that would have found a way to pay off their loans by now years ago. But it's the psychology and the financial stress of, of a runaway train when the interest rate keeps accruing and you just can't keep up. I think that's the problem that we really need to be tackling going forward. And I, I would look to a 0% interest rate from the federal government solution as a, as a great improvement on, on what we have today. Interesting. I didn't know that about Australia. You know, it's mm -hmm. said that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Exactly. Investors use that to their advantage every day. 46 million student loan borrowers fear it. And I think we, we need to just acknowledge that the system is so fundamentally broken that we need big ideas and big actions to fix it. And, and I think for any more conservative thinkers out there that says, that's insane. If you're taking a loan, it should have an interest. I'd say, look, the, the government will obviously be subsidizing 
these loans if they're at 0% interest. But what we're effectively doing now is we're putting high interest rates on student loans, giving out loans like they're candy. And then as everyone runs out with them and then struggles to repay them, the government is incredibly pressured to forgive huge amounts of debt. So we're either, there's no free lunch, and we all know this, but for the government, you're, you're either subsidizing on the front end, and this is what a lot of countries do in Europe and certainly in Australia, to not put an entire generation in a financially precarious situation by subsidizing up front to make it a more digest, digestible system for, for folks over time. The alternative is is mass, you know, financial insecurity, where an entire generation is calling on the president to take aggressive action. And I think that's where you see this becoming a major national political issue. And so I'd say, like, we need a reset. We need to look at this differently and fix it going forward. I'm curious, how did you get into student loans? That's a great question, Miles. I actually uh, did spend some time in Washington, D.C. So I graduated in college uh, from college in 2009, right as the mortgage crisis was really, uh, you know, we were in the grips of it. And it was a huge motivator for me to kind of throw myself into it to figure out how I could I could make a difference. And obviously, I didn't know anything about anything. So what I ended up doing was I, I worked as a community organizer before going to DC, where I started to work with folks in the community who had high debt loads and really struggled to navigate it. And that was when I realized just how much I didn't know because I'm reading through 150 page long loan disclosure forms, realizing that these individuals just were not reading a single line of this, but, but even you know talking to some attorneys, they said, well, I don't read it either. And I was just shocked that we've created this system where the disclosure forms were supposed to protect people from tricks and traps in the loan repayment process, like balloon rate mortgages that go from 3% to 9% over the course of two years and, and inevitably trigger a huge number of foreclosures. And I thought, this is a broken system. And, and that's when I decided to apply for a job in D.C., where I could learn from folks working on this problem. And I ended up at the White House working in the Office of Public Engagement, where I met Elizabeth Warren, who at the time was setting up this new consumer protection agency. Uh, I didn't know really much about her at the time, but I saw how, how just informed she was on the topic. And she asked me to start helping her. I dove in. And before I knew it, I was working on the mortgage crisis. And then very quickly thereafter, she said, we need to also be thinking about what the next crisis for this country could be in the consumer credit markets. And, you know, we had a conversation and she said, student loans is on the top of my list as something that is just getting worse and worse. And I said, well, hey, you know, my own mother spent 15 years trying to pay back her student loans. I have a family history on understanding this, and my entire generation is concerned about this. I couldn't imagine something more tied to my personal interest to dive into. And she said, go for it. All of a sudden, I started researching the student loan market. We very quickly realized that 
the government had not been counting the total debt load, including every type of loan. And so we redid the math and, and the arithmetic around the student debt load and figured out it had passed $1 trillion when you included the private student loan market and all federal loans. All of a sudden, within the, my first year on the job, you know, newspapers across the country, student debt has passed a trillion dollars. It's surpassed total credit card debt. It's, it's surpassed total auto, auto debt and only second to mortgages. And, and that's where the story really started to pick up. And, and that ended up being around 2011. From there, I spent the next few years really diving into the student loan market as deep as I could, understanding where the breakpoints were between the government issuing loans through private student loan servicers that then were hired companies by the government to collect payments and return, and why these companies like Sally May and then later Navient and Nelnet were, were really struggling to help borrowers navigate the process, which I mentioned earlier. And it was in all of this that I realized borrowers were not getting the help they were needed, and the government was not actually well set up to give them that support. There's a reason that the IRS didn't create TurboTax. The incentive alignment is not, is not there. The IRS wants the money owed to it that's owed to it. It's not necessarily built to be an advocate for the taxpayer to navigate the tax code. And I started to realize that the federal government wants its money back and isn't incentivized to help borrowers navigate into the loan assistance programs that members of Congress had created. And so there's, these, there's a weird dual mandate that the Department of Education has. It tries to be your friend. Hey, look at our Twitter. We have all of these tips to help borrowers. But at the end of the day, the Department of Education wants its money back. And so I realized, just like the IRS, the Department of Education is actually the biggest financial bank nestled within a very nice sounding word, Department of Education. It is, it's essentially a $1.5 trillion bank. And as a bank, its incentives are to make its money back. And so borrowers didn't have an advocate. They didn't have someone helping them figure out how to navigate that system. And that's when I decided I need to go create that. I had started a social impact enterprise in college and grew it to 50 employees. And I loved that experience so much, being at the helm of solving a really tough problem with an entrepreneurial solution. And I thought, I got to go do that again. And having spent about five years studying the student loan market, I realized I needed to go out and, and combine my entrepreneurial background in college with the, the years I had spent working, studying on this issue, and then and, and see if I could make a difference. And I had no pretense to think that I, I would be successful. I thought, but no one else is doing it, so I should just give it a try. And so the, the rest is a little bit of history there. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that history. When did you decide to be an entrepreneur that first time? So the, the first time in college, I, you know, I grew up in New York City. And, and why I mentioned that is I got to college and I just saw all of this drunk driving. And, and it's on a separate issue. I was reading in the paper incidents of, of sexual assault in and around campus. 
And it was driving me crazy as a New Yorker because I was like, why are people not using public transportation? It was all I knew. I'd never owned a car myself. My family didn't own a car. My dad doesn't even have a driver's license or didn't at the time. He does now. And, and so I was just shocked at these two incidents. And, and I was a, a actual a writer for the school paper at the time. And I thought, oh, let me look into this. And so I went over to the police department on campus and said, can I access data of DUIs and incidents of sexual assault? And I was able to go through these incidents, where they were located, what time they were happening. And I said to the police chief, you know, it's so interesting that so many of these incidents are, are actually in the same area. And I would have never thought that they'd be connected. And the police chief said to me, Will, you know what it is? This college doesn't have a after hours safe ride program. And so students feel like there really isn't access to public transportation because we're in a, a more you know, suburban, you know, bordering rural area. There isn't a good way to get home. So people are driving home drunk from parties. And a lot of people are walking home alone, also intoxicated and, and putting themselves at risk of sexual assault. And I said, well, why doesn't the school create this program? And the police chief said, well, that's not my job. And so I marched over to the you know, head of student affairs and, and the dean of students offices. And I said, we need a safe ride program. Like clearly I have all the data here. It's not hard to connect the dots that this would be a value add to the community. And isn't student safety the most important thing? And, and they said, um, well, we don't have budget for that. You should talk to the student union, or the, the, the student body president. So I went over there and I said, hey, this is so important to me. And they said, oh, this isn't on our list of goals for the year. And I was just like hitting my head against the wall being like, you know, here I am just like a, a student, not a very good one, but a, a, a student reporter. And I'm trying so hard to get other people to take action. My girlfriend at the time said, Will, you're asking everyone else to do something that you're really passionate about. Why don't you start this thing? And I was like, that's ridiculous. I've never started anything. That's insane. I'll, I'll fail. I have no idea what I'm doing. She said, everything starts with research. And that's what you're doing right now. So why don't you research how to create a safe ride program? Long story short, I ended up, you know, raising money, ended up learning from others that had done it successfully at like the University of uh, Southern California, USC, which has one of the biggest fleets in the country. I, I got a lot of guidance and, and I got this thing off the ground and it's still running today. In our first year, we were able to lower the DUI rate substantially by giving people a safe alternative to driving drunk. And the sexual assault rate actually decreased as well. It took longer, but over the course of two years, the numbers went down. And the police chief laughed as I was graduating and said, you know, this might have been the single biggest impact to student safety that we've seen in, in at least five years. Like huge kudos for like that one conversation turning into something. So I, I will say, as you know, we talk about uh, Miles, you know, you having started a business, starting a company, it's like you really don't you don't know what you don't know when you get started. But it just it takes a lot of determination to get there, but it is possible to achieve. And I I really try to tap back into that youthful energy and excitement to create something bigger than myself when I started summer 
years later and, and also then learn from some of the mistakes I made along the way. Well, that's a wonderful story. Thanks for sharing that. And here's to your girlfriend who spurred you on to start your first venture. <laughs> I'll, 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 let her, I'll let her know you said so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you plan your journey when you went to business school? Did you go knowing you wanted to start summer? I did. And, and so the, the head of admissions at Yale School of Management jokes with me still that I may be the one person who did the thing that I said I was going to do in my application to go to the school. And, and he says, kudos to you for that. And I said, you know, to be honest, I, I wrote it because I thought that in my head, you know, when, when you're going out into life, no one, you know, very few people, if, if any, really, really know what they're going to do. And if you look at the course of, of my career over the last 10 years, it really looks like, you know, I, I went to DC, I worked on this issue of student loans, I learned it, and then I went off and started a student loan startup to help borrowers. There's a great narrative there. I will say I had my doubts. I really, as I was writing that essay, I was like, I almost sort of was starting to drink my own Kool-Aid, so to speak, because I'm trying to position myself as to why I should get in. To this program. And I said, look, I have all of this government experience. I want to start a startup that really is, is helping people. I was effectively writing my business plan as, as an applicant to, to business school. And, and when I say I drink my own Kool-Aid, I started to think, hey, I can do this. This sounds pretty cool. I should do this. And, and I, I will just be very open and transparent that like at the time I was like, I think it sounds good. But, but is it really what I want to do? And I really started to change my mindset when I, when I reread what I wrote. And I said, you know what? I do want to do this. And so when I went to school in the fall of 2015, you know, I, I really tried to think about how to get the most out of business school from the context of being an entrepreneur. While I had started something in college, I had no pretense to think that I was now some successful serial entrepreneur. I thought I got lucky, and but I, I knew that there was so much more I didn't understand. I didn't know how to read a balance sheet. I didn't understand how to do financial projections. I didn't know how to do a pitch deck for fundraising. I didn't know really how to find a co-founder because I had previously done my, you know, my program in college on my own, my, my enterprise there. And so I, I had so much to learn and, and I spent those two years really trying to mine the, the community for, for learnings. Uh, I don't think I'd be where I am today having not done that. And what did you learn about finding and selecting a co-founder and how did that work out for you? I think it's a great question. I will say the most important thing I learned is that, you know, this is a person who is become, become, gonna effectively be married to you. This is a person who, is going to be so with you through the the high highs and the low lows that it's not just about their accomplishments it's really about their character and that's that's something that you can sort of read when you're starting something and say oh yeah yeah, yeah that of course it's about their character i think it's one thing to intellectually process that as another thing to really internalize that and so i think a lot of people in anyone's life your friends, it's like, how well do you really, really know? Them? Like, you know what they're like in fun times when you're, you're having drinks, you're going out to dinner, you're having a great Saturday night together. At the end of the day, though, like, have you ever seen them under incredible pressure? Have you ever really seen them when 
something hits the fan and 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 they're really not you know uh, they don't have control i think the important thing about choosing a co-founder is to really try to to get past that first level of understanding which is oh yeah we get along we're awesome we we they're nice they're fun they're really perceptive i think they have high eq and get a little deeper there so just to give an example of this I met my co-founder at, at Yale School of Management, but we didn't make it official until having worked together for three months on the startup. That person did not become my co-founder until we actually worked on the real startup for three months. It wasn't before. It wasn't like, hey, I've got something in writing. Take a look. Let me know what you think. I'd love to have you join as a co-founder. We ended up after working together, realizing that we had a gap in our area of knowledge and expertise. Neither of us had successfully built a digital product, a digital software. We were both had, you know, adjacent and some overlapping skills, but that was a huge gap. And we realized we needed a third co-founder and I was convinced it needed to be a CTO, someone who really could build the tech and understand the tech. And we ended up going to a pitch competition in Brooklyn that we were very fortunate to win across 20 companies in, the, this was now the summer of 2017. And there was someone in the audience who came up to us after and said, hey, I'm an investor, I wanna, I wanna meet with you guys. And we're like, yes, capital, we're gonna be able to hire people, this is awesome. So we take this meeting and the, the person's name was Vincent and Vincent says to us, you know, in the meeting days later, I, hey, I, I think I'm, there's a misunderstanding. I'm not looking to invest in you. I want to join your team as a co-founder. And we were like record screech, you know, what? What? We don't need a, you know, we, he was a, he said, hey, I've been running product for two fintechs before I went into investing. I really know product. I've been scanning the market for my next company that I really would want to join. And I saw your pitch. I was blown away. I want to be part of this. And I also know what it's like to be a student loan borrower. He pretty much checked every box of everything we needed, but I had it in my head, CTO, CTO. What is this chief product officer? I don't know. You know, he's not a former engineer, but he really understood the borrower experience. And he said, the hardest part of building a company is actually getting the product right. Technology is super complicated. And he's like, I don't, I'm not going to say I understand every single element of it, but I've worked with engineering teams over the years. And he's like, if you try to work with a CTO on like a very consumer focused product and they don't have product guidance, that's not a recipe for success, but we can find great engineers if I come in as the third co-founder to realize the vision that I will help guide for the business on the software. And so I was super impressed, but effectively, I repeated the situation that I had with my previous, my first co-founder. And I said, hey, if we're going to get married, let's start dating before we determine that we're going to really sign up for, for keeps. And he even used that wording with me. He said, I, I get it. I, that is exactly makes sense. So while keeping his job, he spent over two months, uh, close to three months, day in and day out coming to our office, sitting down, rolling up his sleeves, working on weekends. He put in the work. I saw what it was like to work with him. I saw the strengths, the weaknesses. 
And then we made it official three months later. He he left his job, officially came on as the third co-founder at Summer. And it's just been the three of us ever since, effectively, you know, now in our fourth year. So I really advise any current sort of perspective startup founder who's looking for that co-founder to actually take your time with it. It's really, really hard when building a business what to do quickly and move really fast because that's we all know startups it's about you know the the famous line move fast to break things choosing your co-founder i would argue is one of those things that you want to move pretty slowly on and moving fast and breaking things when choosing a co-founder might actually just break the company before it ever gets started thank you wow great advice i'm curious if someone's wondering, should I sign something or protect my downside? What if they work for two months on the product with me and then it doesn't work out? Do they walk away with money or rights to the product? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Miles. I think the actual, the legal side of this is incredibly important. The very first thing I did before even working with my first co-founder was I found a great attorney. And uh, I was lucky. I found I found this person through the Yale network based in New Haven. And, and we later outgrew this this attorney because the needs of the business changed. But just in the first year, phenomenal individual at a very low discounted rate just to get us off the ground. And and we had all the, the sort of the NDAs and the, the non-compete agreements that we needed up front to ensure us sort of a, the security of, of the intellectual property that, that was being created, even when we weren't officially co-founders. And, and what I will just say on that is a note, there was a, an employee early on who worked with us really as an intern, and this individual just didn't sign their NDA non-compete. And just in the, again, moving fast and breaking things, you know, getting a company off the ground, I, I do think that it was a mistake that was just an oversight. We just, we were doing so many things. We didn't realize this one individual among the eight people that were working with us had not signed it. And it probably took a week, uh, if not two weeks of my time, once this person had left and it insinuated that they could go start something similar to convince them to, to after the fact, sign the NDA and non-compete. And we have, eventually it was totally fine. And we're still very actually on great terms with this individual and good friends, but it was a weird kind of moment where they like held it over, this individual held it over us a little bit. And so I will say, it's not enough to just have the forms. You really want to make sure everyone is signing them and that that's not something that's overlooked. Good advice. You mentioned that Summer is direct to consumer or at least started that way. Today, you have multiple channels to reach borrowers. How do you manage so many different channels? I think this is one of the hardest parts of the business. It's a very perceptive question, Miles. I'd say, you know, when you're building a business, you really want to be working to refine all of the company's operations, intellectual property, all of the systems around one working model. And then over time, you can add capital hire more people, expand out. I think one thing that, you know, we have, we've have incredible investors and, and the, the team at QED led our series A round that was started by Nigel Morris, the, the founder of Capital One Bank. 
you know, just incredible expertise on that team. And one of the investors who's on our board from QED said, I, I've never seen a portfolio company with so many different ways to, you know, create a business model and a go-to-market strategy. There's just so many ways to do it. And, and actually the hardest part of summer has been picking a path. And so what I will say is our, our history started as, you know, our first paying client was Yale University. I actually, while there and starting the business, convinced the university to become a buyer of a product that I had yet to build. Uh, that took a lot of convincing, of course, and it did not happen overnight. Uh, despite their large endowment and great reputation, Yale, not so quick to give checks to students, especially for things that haven't been created. In fact, I think they told me this was the first time they'd ever done anything like this. And I got about $50,000 to build a product that would help students at Yale navigate the student loan repayment process to supplement what they thought was a very poorly designed exit guide for students leaving school on how to manage their federal student loan payments. And they said that existing guide is, is terrible. We need a, a really smart system pro based product that could guide people through this digital and maybe even human support. And so I went out and, and built that. And so we started in that model with an institution paying for the borrower's support. The borrower didn't have to pay anything. The institution covered the costs. And so that was our success was what, what you could call a B2B to C model. We got a few other colleges on board. Uh, we started working with Tufts University and a few others, and we were like, this is working. What ended up happening in that process was a bunch of employers started hearing from younger graduates that were going off and taking these new jobs that they had this awesome support from this company called Summer. And inevitably, employers started reaching out to us and said, hey, we want to work with you. We're struggling to recruit Gen Z and millennial employees, the younger set of employees at our company who are loaded up with student debt. And, and when we tell them, hey, we've got this great 401k retirement match, we're hearing from 23-year-olds, from, from even 28-year-olds, uh, I've got 80k of student debt, and that's due in the next 10 years. I, can you help me with that? Because I don't need your retirement match. I can't even think about retirement when I'm just starting my career. And employers said this could really help them with recruiting and retention which is a big cost drive, you know, cost center for the business. And so we said, okay, let's try it out. So we quickly adapted our product for an employer setting. And all of a sudden we started landing some really big employers, a Shurian mattress firm, both with about 20,000 employees. And we thought, wait a second, we can grow faster and reach more borrowers if we start orienting ourselves around employers that are willing to cover the cost for their employees as a benefit. At that moment, we said, okay, we're on to something. And we spent a year and a half developing that. And then what we found in our latest iteration is that we're now hearing from financial institutions. And I think anyone who's interested in fintech has seen just an explosion of innovation over the last 10 years that has gotten, you know, we're really into the, you know, the uh, next inning of innovation in this space, just an explosion in just even the last three years. And what we're seeing is that 
a lot of these neo banks, you know, sort of non-bank entities that are are creating bank accounts for individuals, the chimes, you know, the the credit karmas, the you know, all of these big institutions that have now accounts are are taking customers from the established financial institutions, the J.P. Morgan Chases, the you know, the big institutions out there, and that customer drain is creating a new opportunity for us that is that has been an exciting one and that's the fact that financial institutions are now coming to us saying hey we want to embed your product in our offering because big banks are saying we're losing customers to these startups that are speaking to young people's concerns better than we are and there's no bigger concern for young people than student debt and so uh, we're working with one institution that has access to about 15 million student loan borrowers, which is about one in three borrowers, and that are customers of their institution. And they're now in, they've embedded our product through a series of APIs into their mobile app so that people can discover what their student loan savings would be if they enrolled in one of 100 loan assistance programs. And then we do end-to-end -end enrollment and actually get them into these programs for their for the borrowers in their ecosystem. Right now, we've never charged a borrower for our service. So something that I will say, and you know, true to your question, how do we make a decision? These are three different customer types, but they are all unified under B2B2C. So we have a relationship with the end user and we have a relationship with the paying institution that's covering the service cost and that's been working and we're building off of that every day with some really exciting new partners already in the works to be announced soon but sort of a future uh consideration for us is you know we hear from borrowers all the time hey i would love to use your service i i don't have a paying employer or i don't have a connected institution to get to you how how can i work with you uh, how can I do this? And I'd be willing to pay. And so, you know, we have to, we're working through this very carefully, but we have not introduced a D2C channel where someone would say pay, you know, $75, for example, to get access to summer and all of our, our solutions for borrowers. But it is something that we've been weighing and considering. And as a CEO, I do oftentimes feel like I, you know, I have to hold the line on certain things so that we continue to refine a working model. And then potentially at our next fundraise, we would have an injection of capital, could grow out a D2C team, and then theoretically expand into that category if we decide that that's the best direction for the business. Thanks for laying that out. It's not as complicated as I had assumed once you explain it. And hats off to you for getting Yale as a customer. That's something I never was able to do with my FinTech startup, uh, <laughs> despite signing up hundreds of other colleges. I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing so much about your journey, where it began and how it's come to this. I look forward to seeing more of your growth and success. So thank you for, for being on. Thanks, Miles. It was a real pleasure speaking with you today and uh, hope this was helpful for all the listeners. If anyone's interested in learning more about Summer, check us out at meetsummer.org. We are a B Corp and hiring a bunch of folks and individuals to join the team. So definitely take a look. Thanks again, Miles. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. 
If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.